on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. It's On The Job, the podcast, all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here, flying solo this week. Uh, Sally is, as they say, on assignment. Hopefully we'll catch up with her again before the end of the year. I hope you're well. Thanks for listening once again. Going to get the plug-in early and the big. We'd love for you to rate our podcast. Give us a review on whatever platform you're using. Uh, it helps other people find the pod and uh, share the information, inspiration, all that sort of stuff. We think we're making something worth listening to. And if you do too, you must because you're here. Tell others about it. And the easiest way to do that is give us a review and uh, it helps uh, the algorithm. Oh, the algorithm. Our life is now dominated by such things, sadly. But that's how it is. So do that and uh, we will be forever in your debt. Okay, on today's pod, a really interesting discussion with somebody who I've always admired, uh, James Button. His writing has always been acerbic, very insightful and informed about politics and culture in Australia, and he's done it again with a series of recent articles in the nine newspapers, The Age of the Sydney Morning Herald, about progressive politics, about the nexus between identity and issues related to that and emblematic themes of uh, climate change and equality and such, and those big issues that we all care about, and also the bread and butter issues of traditional labour and progressive politics of wages, uh, working conditions, pay and gender equality, all hard blue-collar stuff. And somewhere in between, James argues that sometimes those who consider themselves progressive, taking care of one part of their agenda and neglecting the other. And maybe that's representative of some of the recent electoral problems that progressive politics has faced in recent times and might face again in the upcoming federal election. It's a rather progressive conundrum that we face here, how we balance those things up. I guess it's most uh, obviously uh, on display on how we deal with the issue around mining, mining communities, mining workers, and our future in a green economy, how we balance those things. Interesting stuff, difficult questions, but we need to have these conversations. And that's what we're going to do with James Button now. James, welcome to On The Job. How are you? Thanks, Francis. Great to be here. You're always a provocative and thoughtful writer, but the piece that was published on the culture wars in uh, nine newspapers last week, The Educational Divide That Threatens to Split the Left, no doubt had uh, the letter writers and the tweeters and those on social media platforms uh, coming at you from all angles. Let's start with the basic premise of this particular piece, a very long and engaging piece, and it's about the change in the nature of progressive politics from working class culture that was involved in improving the quality of life for jobs and uh, living conditions for working people to the battle of ideas and identity. Give us a sense of, of where this piece came from and what your basic premise is. Yeah, Francis, I wanted to explore the fact that the left is increasingly an educated group of people. And the left over its very long history has always been about the rights of people who, ha who haven't had rights. So in particular, people who initially were destitute, had no opportunity, didn't have good jobs or schools to go to, 
And we're very much shut out of society for that reason. Now, over time, the left very rightly expanded its concern to take in women and people of colour and people of different sexualities. You know, that, that diversity in the left has been really important over time. But I fear that increasingly the left has lost its focus on the material advancement of people who, who don't have money and don't have opportunity. And I think we need to get back to a left that is focused on on those prime concerns. And a lot of those concerns uh, intersect with um, issues that, that, that people think of, you know, very important today, which they are, like issues of racism and sexism. There's a key overlap there. But I, I think we need to get back to, you know, in a sense, class-based analysis of what people suffer from most. Well, you draw a really vivid example of that at the very start of this article that you've written about uh, a woman by the name of Katie Barnett. Do you want to tell a bit of Katie's story and and why that rang true to you about her experience being emblematic of this change and this problem? Yeah, so Katie is an academic at the law school at the University of Melbourne. She comes from a very disadvantaged background. Her grandparents basically had no money at all. One of her grandparents is Indigenous, the other is Anglo-Celtic, and they grew up in Sydney with very little. And her parents got a break. They got education and did quite well, but still felt very much connected to the working class. And now Katie's a senior law academic at Melbourne University, and the students that she teaches and knows are very much focused on issues around identity, issues of race, sexuality, gender, and they have lost that focus on people who face material disadvantage. And she also feels that a lot of the campaigns that happen today are very much, you know, often online, establishing that somebody might have said something that falls outside the accepted parameters around those identity issues. And her parents have actually moved away from the left and feel that the left no longer speaks to them, including the ALP. So I started there because it seemed to set the scene for the larger picture of where the left has gone in Western societies. And it's really interesting. Thomas Piketty, the French economist, has done some great work on this. And he shows that, you know, in 1960, Francis, basically, if you weren't educated and were of low income, you voted left. And if you had high education and, and of high income, you voted conservative. 60 years later, around education in particular, those uh, polls have been reversed. So if you're of high education today, you will predominantly vote left. Not, not entirely. There is a group of people, educated people who vote conservative, but increasingly that group votes left. Whereas more and more people of low education uh, and low in income, w with some key exceptions amongst minority groups, are voting conservative, are voting for the right. Now, that trend has not been as advanced in Australia as it is in some other places, but it's happening here as well. And you see that in the Labor Party's report on the last election, where the 20 seats with the most number of graduates in Australia had a swing to the ALP, the 20 seats with the least number of graduates had a swing away from the ALP, in both cases around 
So what we've got here is, uh, I guess, the classic split in contemporary politics between the cosmopolitans and the provincials, or as the Americans might say, the coastal elites and flyover country. So that very vivid divide between uh, between class, which is now designated around education and income. But how did it get to a point where the people who consider themselves progressive have lost sight of the idea of, say, union solidarity, of the idea of improving their working conditions of ordinary people as a core principle of a good, fair, egalitarian, progressive society? That's a great question. And I think there are many uh, reasons for it. One is the changing nature of the workforce. I mean, if you have, you know, the Grattan Institute did work that showed that basically if you get a degree, you will earn between $700,000 and a million dollars more over the course of your career than if you don't. So obviously people are, people are saying, I need to get a degree. A lot of jobs in the past, public service, finance jobs, accounting jobs, people often took those jobs after year 12, but now you really need to have a degree. So the share of the population that has degrees has increased and that population typically with some key exceptions like teachers and nurses, is not unionised. I think that's the first point. The second point is that the workplace has changed so much structurally that's made it very hard for trade unions to organise in the same way that they're able to. The, you know, the big sort of factory work of the past has dwindled down so much. 40 years ago, we were one in 10 workers was, I think even actually much more, I think it was closer to maybe even one in four, 40, 50 years ago was working in, in manufacturing. That has changed. So unions have suffered that. That, uh, And then, of course, there were the legislation in the Howard period, the Howard Reith legislation, which also hit trade unions very hard. Unions have lost, you know, in 1980, half the workforce was unionised. Now it's down to 13% in the private sector. It's much lower for young workers, you know. So I think unions just aren't as much front and centre for young people on the left as they used to be. Now, I hope that changes. I, I think a society without strong trade unions is a much poorer society and workers are going to be ripped off all the time. But there are really big global forces, you know, working against trade unions, and they tend to keep unions out of out of sight, I think, for a lot of young people. Yeah, it's been a real challenge uh, as someone involved in trade unions and uh, deeply committed to it to connect with young people. There have been some wins along the way and new models of organising are starting to emerge, which hopefully reconnects uh, unions to the relevance in the lives of younger people. I think there is certainly green shoots and hope there. And we're seeing in the United States at the moment a, a growing flexing of union power in what's been called the Great Resignation or the, or the flip of uh, the labour demand situation there where companies like John Deere have had to pay huge and significant pay rises to their workforce as a consequence of some very strong union action. So I think there's hope within that that's going to change. But what you've been writing about is how that gap between those who are working poor and those who are earning well and living well is enormous. And so that shrinking middle class has meant that there's been a level of disillusionment with the people 
who are struggling with the social contract and they've said, well, stuff it, fuck it. We don't want to be involved in it anymore. And hence we get something like Brexit where a town like Sunderland in the northeast of the UK, which is uh, has been Labor for generations and generations, is uh, a tough working class town, is the, the city that votes the most to against its own self-interest to exit the European Union. I mean, it's um, they're frightening times. Yeah, they are, Francis. And I, and I think... Uh, you know, I say at the end of that piece in The Age and Sydney Morning Herald that there really is no route to power for centre-left parties and no way of achieving the goals that progressives hold really important that doesn't go through the aspirations and hopes and, and struggles of ordinary working people. You know, there, it just the numbers don't add up. You know, there aren't enough, you know, there are a lot more educated people than there used to be, but they still are nowhere near forming a majority of the population. And even if they did, there would still be a share of them that are going to vote Conservative. So that's the first reason. The second reason is these are some of the biggest needs and issues that we face. I mean, inequality is uh, increasing all the time. Our schools are struggling to provide opportunities for disadvantaged people. The housing market is shutting young people out. These are huge problems of our time. We haven't even talked about climate change and and how climate change might generate economic opportunity. To me, they're the big issues that we need to be focusing on. And, you know, a left-wing movement that is really worth its salt will focus on them. One of the things you discuss in the piece, and I'm sure this generated a lot of heat for you, I mentioned your inbox has been burning up, is uh, the obsession with the control of language and the use of language as an expression of political identity. For instance, you talk about the use of pronouns and other language, which has become very much part of a progressive political ideal, and how that is serving that purpose, but is a million miles away from the, the needs you just described there in, in order for progressive politics to succeed. Can you tell us about uh, what your thinking was there? I think the focus on language does reflect the educated nature of the progressive left now. I think that it's not to say there aren't important issues in there, but language is something that you become very attentive to when you get an education. And I think for people who haven't had an education or have only had, you know, maybe school-leaving education, language is just not important in the same ways. And I cite an essay by Shannon Burns, who's, who grew up in Adelaide in a working-class community, and he said, you know, we had real... There was genuine problems of violence in that community and, you know, sometimes language to be given the rough end of someone's tongue was a lot better than being given, you know, the, the rough end of their fist or whatever, you know. And I think those perspectives are lost to a large degree at the moment. I really think we need to think of ways to how we can bring in voices from people who have not had education. And those voices will be from right across the spectrum of different communities, different cultures, Indigenous Australians. You know, how do we bring those perspectives into the political debate? And look, I'm a member of the Labor Party. I still think that the Labor Party can provide that forum and should be providing that forum and be doing a lot more where those debates can be had because that's the thing about politics. The desires, the sort of society you want to see come up against the hard reality of what can be achieved. And that's when real political struggle starts to happen, I think. It's not the only way to be political. You know, single issue campaigns can be really important and 
campaigns around culture, around a whole a whole bunch of things, and other political parties and independents have their place. But I just think the Labor Party is still a, a crucible of where I think much left-wing energy, that's my own bias, but I think where a lot of left-wing energy and, and focus should be you know, should be put. And, you know, if you don't like the way the Labour Party is, get in there and fight to change it, you know, fight to to get the party you want to see. Is it also a case that the battle around language and ideas has replaced the battle for improved material conditions because people don't want to do that work? That it's easier to have an intellectual battle about what it means to be progressive and egalitarian through the battle over words than it is to fight for an, an EBA or the opportunity to improve uh, the the casual work problem. Uh, these are hard issues that take a lot of graft and work, and it's you know it's blue collar and it's not sexy and it's difficult, and you're dealing with people who might not have the same political outlook and will not speak the same way and might actually hold racist views or they might be uneducated and have you know, a level of ignorance that is a consequence of their education, but, you know, not necessarily their fault. I mean, I come from that world. I grew up in Broadmeadows. I'm you know, the, the son of a factory worker. I, I know that world. Uh, yeah. It seems that the intellectual left doesn't know that world anymore and is not really that interested in that world anymore. I think that's true, and and I think it that has to change. And your point about politics being hard work is just so true. You know, it's not romantic, you know, it's it's about building alliances. It's about finding people you don't necessarily agree with, but you're broadly in the same area. You might be fighting about something else, but how can we work together on this issue? It's about reaching across the aisle and building coalitions. You know, the, the left doesn't have capital. It doesn't have great advantages, although I actually think the progressive left now is quite powerful in cultural institutions, you know, but it certainly doesn't have that economic power. And so it has the power of its voice, really, that it needs, you know, I think that's that's really important. But that means building coalitions. What worries me about the progressive identity politics is it tends to slice itself into smaller and smaller groups rather than building larger groups, you know. And I also think, to your point, Francis, about growing up in Broadmeadows, and I, I'm sure that people there would take improvements that weren't necessarily perfect just because you know that, that's the path of of politics is that hard work to get some reforms let's let's take those reforms let's build on them get the wins where we can you know and um, and I think unions have always understood that you know that it's really about you campaign for something you don't get everything you want but then you use that achievement towards the next step and that's something that we're seeing in the climate change campaigns, aren't we? The all-or-nothing approach by some in progressive and and left-wing politics and ideas who who believe that it's all-or-nothing, that there is no compromise and no doubt the climate emergency is, you know, the greatest and gravest threat of our time. But the only way that we can do it and preserve our democratic ideal is incrementalism. And that's boring and hard. And it doesn't necessarily sit well with uh, emphatic views that we need to have a plan that, uh, you know, we'll pick winners and losers in a sense. And uh, we saw this in the 2019 election with the Adani convoy and the approach towards the uh, candidate for Capricornia, who I declare an interest. Russell Robertson is somebody I admire and know, and I worked with Russell on that campaign. And he's a third-generation coal miner who is running again for the, for the Labor Party, but is someone who 
in his soul believes in the reality of climate change, but trying to take his community with him on a journey to some sort of meaningful future beyond coal mining without simply just saying it's all over, shut the town down. And not everyone wants to hear that message in his town, but on the other side, people uh, who who present themselves as, as progressive are quite happy to say, bad luck, mate. You know, what we want is yeah. to see that mine shut down tomorrow and what happens to you and your community, not really our problem at the baseline. That's exactly right. And I, I don't know so much about Russell as you do, but I read about him in Lech Blaine's essay, Top Blokes, which is a quarterly essay, and he, yep. he, he talks about that issue a lot. There's some interesting work going on in The Hunter where the Labor Environment Action Network is working with coal mine workers there to try and see how they can come to a common position on climate change. I, you know, I think... We're probably getting past the stage of incrementalism. You know, we are going to need some pretty radical solutions there, but we have to bring people with us, you know, and you have to have to bring workers. You know, the people who are going to lose their jobs in those places, they have a massive stake in this debate, you know, and as you say, that position is often just shut out and it can't be that way. James, the article is, I mean, you're very blunt in lots of it and it's brilliantly researched and, and it really struck a chord with me. But I, I think I'd be fascinated to know what the reaction was to it from people who might have felt aggrieved by what you wrote because that in a sense informs us how our political debate on the left works, whether people who might feel like they're subject to some of your comments can take that on board and argue in a civil way, <laughs> uh, vigorously but civilly that, you know, maybe even just disagree with you outright. But what was the dynamic in the response that you received for those who disagreed with you? I'm not massively on Twitter, Francis, so I'm not, but there was a de- degree of criticism saying that I was blaming Labor's problems on identity politics when, in fact, it was Labor's failure to present an inspiring message to young people that was the problem. I think there is some validity to that, but I also think if you look at the 2019 election, Labor actually went to that election with some pretty radical policies around negative gearing and the franking credits, and they were big economic reforms, and we lost. And, you know, I think Labor had to take that on board and understand that, you know, at the moment that those policies are not uh, able to be sold. You know, I think that supporting the stage three tax cuts, I had concerns about that. But I think that Labor has to get elected. For, for, as I said to you before, the, the things that progressives hold dear will only happen, will, most, will happen most significantly when with Labor in power. So I don't think the criticism that I was blaming identity politics is, is fair. I think ultimately uh, we need a synthesis that picks up the class-based issues with issues like addressing racism and and, and addressing the, the vast gender disparities that still exist in our workplace, for example. So, yeah, I, get, I think that was the most prominent kind of on, on that particular issue. And I would just say that we have to find a way to recover that really bread and butter issues, uh, especially around schools. And I think schools are such a big area that you know the uh, the left could really focus on how do we how do we ensure that schools that there are paths that don't all go through university you know that schools offer a range of opportunities and that and that the vet system is really strong you know so that there are good opportunities and good jobs coming out of trades and out of uh, you know non kind of non-tertiary related outcomes do you think that 
the issues around labour hire, casualised work, people living paycheck to paycheck, not able to get a home loan because or a car loan or go on holiday because they don't have a permanent job. You know, that is the bread and butter stuff we've been talking about that divides the haves and the have-nots. Do you think that that is where this election is going to be won and lost? I think it's going to be one of one of the issues, and I haven't seen what the ALP is proposing on that issue. Not at the ACTU will have you know a very strong set of policy recommendations on that. Yeah, I think it's going to be to a large degree COVID stability election, but those issues can be really important at the margins. I you know well big, bigger than at the margins. I think there are a lot of people who are doing it hard at the moment and a lot in the ways that you describe. And a lot of them are young and COVID made their lives incredibly difficult. You know, and we've seen through, you know, through the aged care sector, the disability care sector, you know, the, the, the extra pressures that were put on them as a result of, of COVID. And, you know, anything that can, can make their conditions more secure, I think is actually going to be a you know, really big issue in the campaign. It's just how those concerns are bundled up into a set of policies, you know, that will get through the noise, you know, so that people can see that there is a potential for, for real change to happen here. Well, it's going to be such an important election. Let's hope that message does carry the day. Look, James, it's been great talking to you. We'll make sure we post in the show notes a link to the article and the other ones that you've written in this series. It's important writing and it's uh, it's time for us all to think a bit more deeply about the consequences of how we uh, live our politics. And we really appreciate you being on the job. Thanks, Francis. Great to be here. This is On The Job with Francis Leach and Sally Rudd. Writer, author, thinker, James Button. The articles that he's written, they're in the show notes. So if you want to go into a bit of a deep dive and have a look at what he's written, you can do that there and uh, join the conversation and the debate. And uh, it's worth having these conversations. Often we get polarised and people want to dig in and argue their position from a point of view of uh, uh, you know, framing that as a value judgment against those who might have a different point of view. I don't think that's helpful. I think, if anything, that's probably held us back from coming to a position that we can try and accommodate everybody in what is challenging but necessary conversation. Anyway, that's this week's pod done and dusted. As I said, thank you for being with us on the job. We love having you here. Sally, hopefully back in the next couple of weeks. Remember to give us your review. Your uh, endorsement always helps. My name is Francis Leach. It's been fun. Uh, you can follow me at St. Frankly on the Twitter sphere, and I will talk to you next week on the job. 